to The New Disruptors, a podcast that suggests that while love isn't all you need, it is a pretty big part of it. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman, the editor and publisher of The Magazine. I went to the XOXO Conference and Festival a couple of weeks ago. This is an event you've heard me talk about a lot because many of my guests have been part of that festival, either helping to plan it as speakers or attendees. It's a really remarkable event because it brings together creative people who have figured out a way to maintain independence, even as they work sometimes with large companies or with lots of other people, and pursue their own path in life. This doesn't mean when you go it alone that it's easy. Frank Chimero wrote a great essay I'll link in the show notes after XOXO about the cost and price you pay for being independent. It's hard work. But the speakers and so many of the hundreds of attendees have figured out just what it means to own your own creativity and try to find your own path to what makes you happy. This doesn't mean ignoring business, but it does mean making sacrifices and making choices. The conference is all about that. I talked to the organizers, Andy Bayo and Andy McMillan, back in June when they announced the current lineup. We don't know if there'll be an XOXO 2014 yet. It takes a lot out of them, and they're thinking about it. I hope there is. At the conference, I walked around in the market space that was open to the public and talked to four different individuals about what they were doing and how they'd started something new and brought it to fruition. Here are the interviews. I'll introduce each of them in turn. Let's start with BrewBot. It's an automated beer brewing system that has a number of sensors that talk to a smartphone app. The idea is to put consistency and measurement into home brewing and possibly other tasks in which precisely controlled temperature would be useful. It's probably too big to put in the kitchen, but it wouldn't look out of place there. They had a prototype at XOXO. It's made by a wonderful bunch of guys from Northern Ireland. A year ago, they were app developers. This year, they have a prototype of a new piece of hardware. I talked to Chris McClelland, who's the head of the company. As I tape this, they're about 60% of the way to their Kickstarter goal of 100,000 pounds to start production. Here's my interview with Chris. So you launched a Kickstarter at the XOXO Festival. Yeah, last year we were at XOXO, and it was quite a defining moment for us. Uh, we were doing app development, um, and we always wanted to get into product, but XOXO really just motivated us to do that. And I suppose over the last year, we've uh, formulated this idea of, of brewing. We've, we've been homebrewers for a long time, and um, we've, we've solved seen the problems that have been in there uh, in the process. And we, uh, as developers and designers, we've seen ways of, of solving those problems. So that's how BrewBot was born. Oh, that's great. So you come from the app background. This isn't yeah. like, you aren't hardware guys, you're homebrewers, app developers, so we can put this together into something. Yeah, we've, uh, it's a scary uh, step, but um, a very challenging one as well, and that's been um, very rewarding. But we have partnered with the right people to help us fill those gaps. Um, we've got our hands dirty as well in many more, more ways than one, and we've sort of um, become... Um, like we use a lot of Arduino stuff. We do a lot of our own electronics now, and you know, we've become very au fait with that sort of thing. How much do you have to uh, engage in like the manufacture process? Like, are you doing um, prototyping? You have like three D printed metal parts coming out, or is it more? Are you finding machine shops to make parts for you to test? Uh, we've used as much as possible off the shelf uh, parts because once you get into stainless steel and you sort of try to manufacture, especially vessels, it becomes very very expensive, and obviously the lead times for all that sort of stuff becomes very big so where possible we've used those and we've modified and adapted those um we've sourced really good um people in in uh, germany or suppliers uh, so it's, it's a matter of sourcing a lot of the, the, the right um tools and we still have some work to do and that sort of thing 
Uh, we've got you know valves that are stainless steel, but you know we want to try and make them wildless and things like that. So there's lots of lots of areas there that we have to do that. So walk me through how the Brewbot is going to work. You know, you say it's got bot in the name. You've got a <laughs> you've got an exterior prototype here. I'm looking at, but the in, we can't look at the interior yet right now, right? That's the. Uh, there, there's secrets. There, no, there's a sneaky shot on our uh, Kickstarter <laughs> campaign. You can see the sort of uh, the inner workings, and it's it's amazing. Um, we've we've opted for a very um, clinical, but also you know quite um, you know wooden facade. And um, but whenever we showed people inside, they actually have went wow. Uh, so we we decided to be a bit more transparent about that sort of thing. Oh, inside is actually um, it's all copper at the moment. We that's a prototyping. Um, Sort of material. Uh, we're trying to do stainless steel again. That's if our Kickstarter campaign was um, um, it was successful, we'd be hopefully um, doing that sort of thing. Is it app controlled, or is there a front panel, or how do you get information in and out of the Brewbot about the stage of what's going on? This is where we used our app development chops. <laughs> we um, yeah, we we built an interface on the iPhone which connects uh, to the Brewbot. And whenever you start uh, brewing, you, um, there's a button to say start brewing, and Brewbot knows exactly the amount of water uh, that you need to put in. And it's, it pours it in for you. Say you want 14.1 liters, it'll add it. And, and every recipe is slightly different in terms of what you need to start your strike temperature with, but it'll accurately rise up to that temperature. Um, at the moment, we're using induction. Heating's a really important part of that. And once uh, it's hit its strike temperature, then it transfers. There's a series of valves open, and it gets dropped into a, what's called a mash tun, and it sits there for 60 minutes. Again, we're monitoring the temperature and ensuring that it sits at that temperature. And then once that's done, the pump um, lifts the, the water up to the top again, and we return into a, into a boil. And that's where all the sort of, you know, it, it gets uh, flavors, and we start to add hops and things like that over the course of 60 minutes. Is uh, that, that's all the hops? Everything is that automatically released, or is that a point where people then get in and start pouring things in? Unfortunately, not at this stage, uh, but there's, just, there's mm-hmm. certain moments of uh, notification, or certain moments of interactions, mm-hmm. and of course you'll get notifications. And, uh, <laughs> push notifications. You've got hops. Yeah, you, you need hops in this. Um, so yeah, we've, we've built all those sort of like interaction things. There's a few, we wanted to make it more like an assistant, um, something that's, you know, managed all the, the finer details of temperatures and all this sort of stuff to give you all the data that you actually need um, and then free you up to apply almost chef mentality to making beer. Think about the ingredients, experiment with those things, throw in ingredients and, you know, try things. But this seems almost more like baking because uh, there's this distinction between like baking and cooking, right? Like cooking sometimes it's a really, you have to stay, chefs learn secrets, but you still have to stay at the stove, you're watching things, all the ingredients are always different. You're doing a lot of monitoring. Does this take part of that into sort of more of a scientific baking process where I'm not sitting there like with temperature gauges every three seconds and worried about stuff? You're giving me timing, temperature, other things that are hard to control as a home brewer? Uh, totally. They're, they're like, whenever we were brewing, uh, it was always a problem. We were running up and down stairs and trying to monitor the temperatures and we were always missing them slightly. And, you know, we wanted to aim for perfection. So it's, it, it's become like, like baking or it's become like, you know, scientific process as well. It's like, you know, something that could be in a lab. And we're hoping that even like, commercial brewers would use it as a pilot plant as well. Oh, that's interesting. To make small batches without the same kind of fussiness that it requires them to do it too. Definitely. And it's repeatability as well. It's the thing oh, that's, yeah. um, you know, at the moment when you're homebrew, there's too many variables. We're trying to remove those variables and allow people to um, repeat as much as possible. Um, and th- that, that sort of applies to commercial brewing. And that's why it would be useful for those people. Oh, I see. So it's interesting because temperature is the hard thing to control. Like whether you're doing coffee or sous vide or beer brewing or so many things, temperature is hard for amateur chefs or cooks or brewers. Totally, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So your Kickstarter, you're setting to raise 100,000 pounds. 
So you're taking advantage. So Kickstarter, this is great. So you're in the UK. Kickstarter opened up uh, UK was six or eight months ago. It's been a bit now where yeah. it's gone. Has that taken off? Are you seeing lots of people now jumping onto the Kickstarter bandwagon in, in the Ireland and, uh, and uh, Northern Ireland, all, all over the UK? Yeah. And so forth. Um, Kickstarter, we, for years, um, being in the UK, we've... Uh, craved Kickstarter to come to the UK. Um, they <laughs> were always right. teasing can, us with all these. You could American pledge, things. you couldn't do yeah, one though, right? Exactly, and we, um, and yeah, it's 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 we're seeing it definitely rise. I think it's had a little bit of a slow start, but it's definitely seeing some really interesting projects now, and it's good to see pound yeah. signs on it. Well, in Canada, finally, Canada was later really? than the UK. <laughs> yeah, they just launched Canada not that long ago. But I mean, I don't. If it were me, I, it's such a tricky thing to deal with finances across borders. There's issues like I wonder about. With liability. You know, the United States has insane liability laws. I have no idea what the United Kingdom's laws are regarding that. Do you have concerns? Have you vetted things through, you know, I don't even know what the practice is in the UK. Worried about vessels or, you know, the, the homebrewing. There's always people talk about their, their uh, things blow up in the basement, you know, and they have to be yeah. on the side and there's a smell and whatever. How have you addressed those issues in the, in the design or in the, the manufacturer? Um, we've taken a lot of advice. Mm-hmm. First of all, we've made a beer every day for a while. You know, we've we sort of <laughs> been trash and, and we've sort of been trying to, you know, tra- stress test our process. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, um, in the UK, there's a lot of um, sort of certifications, um, similarly in, in the US, and we've we sought advice on what we need to achieve there. Again, it's something that we need more money to do. It's, a, it's quite a large amount of money that's required to do that sort of thing. So we're very aware of them. And a lot of our sourcing, we constantly look in at specifications of things that say that they're food safe and they, they're suitable for 100 degrees and all those things. And cleaning is very important mm-hmm. as well. So there's a massive tick box of things that we need to see and make sure they work. Yeah, water and electronics, for example. It's all yeah. stuff that we have to be very, very aware of. But, so the, but that's nice. So there's a, a government process you can go through where you're going to get a certification for it, so you'll have the you'll have at least gone through a process. You'll say, oh, okay, this has been approved by whatever commission or group or agency. Totally, yeah. Oh, that's great. It's, um, yeah, a lot of the products we, or, or sorry, parts that we use or components already have those um, oh, right. um, there, and it actually makes it a little bit easier whenever you're going through that process. Uh, UK is slightly different from the US in what's required, but we've got a list of all those things, and that's part of the, the process. So what is the BrewBot going to cost as part of, if I want one as one of the rewards? Uh, I know you have a very limited reward schedule. So what's the BrewBot price in the, uh, in the Kickstarter? Um, BrewBot, we've got a range of BrewBots. Um, BrewBot's got this personality. We're trying to get this across. And um, there's, uh, we're using reclaimed wood, which is very different than every single BrewBot. Um, but we're also giving off um, rewards of different facades. Uh, like chalkboards and walnut and all those sort of things, which we can add real character to it. And some people can even add a, a custom one as well. Uh, they could ask, you know, for a branded side or, you know, a different wash or something. And we're, we're really interested in that sort of process as well. So for that reason, there's a range of prices from £1,500 uh, right up to £2,500. Well, that's interesting. So in the end, you don't really have to sell that many units to reach your, your goal. And that's sort of, that seems like one of the good things, too, is that your minimum, at least, you only need to sell... I did the math, like 50, or 50 to 70 units would get you over the top. Well, our sites are firmly um, focused, <laughs> are set on really making brewing more accessible. Mm-hmm. I think the quantity for us is you know, secondary. We're really, right. um, really sort of passionate about this, and uh, we can see so much potential, and there's so many like, add-ons that we can see and you know, mm-hmm. different parts of processing. It really, really exciting for us. So for us, this is the start of a massive journey. It's, it's, it's almost like a yeah. platform for brewing that we're trying to do. You're doing this weird thing. You're using Kickstarter to kickstart what you're doing. That's excellent. It's true, but, yeah. So it's where true. can I put a brew bot? Am I going to put it in the kitchen or am I going to put it in a cellar? Where is it going to go? 
Does that he, depend on the person? It, it does. <laughs> I'm going to build a special room to house it. Yeah, we started out this project thinking this is going to look lovely in everybody's kitchen. Yeah. And we realized that it's, uh, whenever we'd done the scale and sort of worked out what the, the, the sweet spot was mm-hmm. for brewing, which is about 22 liters, uh, that it wouldn't work like that. And there's a lot of boiling water, so that has to go somewhere um, oh, again. Oh, you vented out. And 20, 22 liters, uh, I'm trying to do my American math here. So what, how many five bottles gallons. of beer does that wind up? It's five gallons. Oh, five really, gallons so, yeah. at the end. So, if, so I get five gallons is, that's like a, is that a pony keg? That's a small keg. Yeah, small. Mm-hmm. Um, you can get kegs that size. Yeah. But we, um, it's slightly smaller, actually. You can probably get about 22 liters, or mm-hmm. 20, 20 liters, sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so it, it produces that sort of volume. But we were actually surprised once we started to talk to people. Um, we actually realized that restaurants would be quite interested oh, in this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we thought, okay, food standards and all yeah. that sort of stuff that you have to be very careful about. But there's a um, there's an interesting thing that we've talked to restaurants where they go and um, say, actually, we can apply the exact same to what we do with our menu for foods right. to beer, and we can actually see some some of the same ingredients. And you know. Yes, restaurants want consistency around a certain beer. People come in and love that. But they can also have a specials around their beer. So right. uh, we've actually had a really keen interest in that market. Um, well, it gives them scarcity, right? They can make a special thing. And they've, they've got staff all the time. So people begin doing all the work. What, uh, how quickly does the process take? I know home brewers, and I can't remember how long will this cycle you through to get you a complete fermented, finished beer? It totally depends on the beer. Oh, yeah. Uh, there's, a, there's a massive range. But... Um, Brewing at the moment, we've we've done batches in four hours, uh, five hours. So it's uh, sorry, and it's, to to make the beer and then you ferment it, uh, which so takes two weeks. We're not doing anything magical there. You decant it, okay? But you decant it after the four or five hours. You decant it, and then it, yeah. then you uh, you uh, you let it through, go through the rest of the process yes. in a separate container. So at the end of the process, the beer um, is cooled um, yes. and hits twenty degrees or whatever you, you want it to, and yeah. uh, basically it ends up in a fermentation tank, uh, which right. we provide uh, one of those, and we, we sell those um, further. Uh, but then that sits in that for two weeks, four right. weeks, it depends on the beer. But that gets you, so you can cycle through. So a kitchen, I guess I'm thinking about, like for a home brewer, that's great. They can do that. They can make a few batches over a month and let things go on their way. They'll have two or three fermentation uh, you know, vats or what have you. But uh, commercial operation, they could be cycling through. They could buy 10 or 20 of these and have people running it through during the day, during off shifts or what have you. Totally. We've, yeah. We've already imagined an army of brew bots sort of <laughs> for conferences and things like that. So That's excellent. Well, Chris, I was talking to Chris McClellan of BrewBot, who just started the Kickstarter here this morning at XOXO. Thanks for talking. Thank you very much. If you have a penchant for walking around with a pencil and a notebook, you probably know about Field Notes, a venture between Jim Kudal, who I interviewed several months ago, of Kudal Partners, and Aaron Draplin. Well, Aaron, who runs his own company, Draplin Design, was at the XOXO Festival selling all manner of things, T-shirts, Field Note guides, posters of states, all kinds of terrific stuff. Amazingly creative guy, likes to work with his hands likes to get stuff printed in-house. He does a lot of design work. That's his day job. But these products that he makes have really resonated with people. And we talked about what it means to be authentic and, and the kinds of things that he likes to create and share with other people. Here's my talk with Aaron. So this is Aaron Draplin from Draplin Design. Yeah, Draplin Design Company here in Portland, Oregon. Uh, uh, sort of official on the record books here mm-hmm. you know, for the you know, Multnomah County, we'll just say. Unofficially all over North America. A couple places in the UK and shit, but uh, yeah, the Draplin Design Company. I make logos and and uh, work with Jim Kudal on field notes and and then dabble in a bunch of clandestine bullshit. That you know, I'd say about you make a buck and you throw a buck away somehow. 
and uh, everything kind of evens out. Yeah. What's fun here at XOXO is you've got this huge booth. You got you're assembled here with uh, this whole array of stuff. It's all beautifully designed objects, but. It seems to me your intent is not just to make beautifully designed objects. Like you've got, Glenn, we're not here to make friends, we'll just say. Okay, we're right. here to make cash. <laughs> so we're here selling stuff at Portland-only prices to all these bastards, and we'll take their money all day oh, long. Oh, you're so funny. But, you know, I just like the idea of shaking hands with all these kids, mm-hmm. meeting all these people. I've met some guys that work for the biggest of the big. But then met a bunch of young kids who, you know, I wish I could have went to something like this when I was 20. Mm-hmm. So we bring all of our stuff here, posters and T-shirts and trinkets and field notes and fun stuff. And really just kind of hang out and get a pulse of what's going on, you know, because if up to my own devices, I will stay in my shop all day mm-hmm. long, right? You know, like all year long. But I go do speaking gigs and stuff, and I go interact with people. It's been an awesome to get back out because otherwise you can get real hermit-ish, you know, fast. Well, you know? I'm, I'm really curious about when I look at your work, like where does this all come from? Because you're doing stuff, it's, you've got a lot of different kinds of things you do that all have this incredibly strong design sense to it. You know, we know there's a, 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 a force behind it. You've got a strong design sense in everything that comes out of your shop. How do you start with this? I mean, where did you come along where you said, I'm going to do posters of states that are made up of, of word elements. I'm going to do uh, this great space shuttle, uh, you know, honorary, like 30 years of the space shuttle thing that made everyone think of their childhood. I mean, where, where did you start down this path? Well, I think before I ever got hired to do a job, you know, uh, 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 you know, sitting here with all these microphones and shit, I'm trying to be all official. So I'm going to be very unofficial. <laughs> be very but, you know, the idea that, like, um, I already knew that no one was going to hire you to make something you loved. Every now and again, you get to do that. More and more, I'm, I'm tickled that I get to be able to do shit that I would kind of tricks me. I get a paycheck for it. So I've never been afraid of being like, if I'm going to make something for myself because I love it, I'm going for it. And that's where all of design started for me. You know, it was um, the, the, the functional quality of, like, my buddies have a band. They want to make a flyer. They make the flyer. How do you make it the size? And how do you make different colors and shit? So I taught myself a lot of this stuff before I ever got an associate's degree or a bigger degree or some sort of title where, like, oh, wow, I'm a designer that people might know about. Like, I don't really care about any of that stuff. I make things. There's something I love, be it a thick-lined logo or any of the thousand logos I've made. A lot of the stuff falls into a different category. This is all shit that's fun. Mm-hmm. I don't really get to show the stuff I make a living off because that isn't about me. That is about a client that brought some little nightmare to me and said, listen, here's our problem. We need a solution. And I try to morph into what's appropriate for them. So this is where I get to be very indulgent, mm-hmm. you know, and say, all right. I want a space shuttle poster. We are children of the space shuttle. I'm making it. I mean, am I even allowed to? I don't care. But it resonates with people. So you make it, and it's genuine. People know. I mean, I can tell the emotion in it. It's not Well, the story behind it is that I saw this patch. It was a patch uh, competition for NASA. Mm -hmm. NASA. Mm -hmm. And I came into it Monday morning. They picked the thing on Sunday. You know, and everyone said, well, why didn't you try it? I didn't know. Mm -hmm. And the quality of the work that was sent in. To be, you know, trying to be nice. It was shit. And it hurt to see that because yeah. if I would have known or my, any of my, my, my buddies I work with would have known, they would have been so quick to make something so much more successful. Mm-hmm. So that Monday afternoon, I made my little guy and said, man, if I could have made a patch, I would have made this. And that's where it started. That's in 2010. So, you know, you make these things because it's something you really love. 
You know, I used to believe in the shuttle, and I still do. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like this cool thing America was doing, and, and now, you know, it's kind of gone. I, I kind of miss it, yeah. you know? So there's always a nostalgic kind of element to something. I may be it a coin purse. Like, I don't want us to forget what it's like to have a big pile of change in your mm-hmm. pocket or how to screw up on paper. Mm-hmm. Like, that's, we're forgetting that. You know, there's people here developing some goddamn app that's going to, like, make you hold your phone closer to your face even more. And that just scares me. You know, it kind of freaks me out because, you know, go look at your kid's handwriting. It's non-existent. They don't mm-hmm. really know how to fight in a schoolyard or, you know, any of this kind of shit. You're worried about that eye-hand connection that makes, develops the brain? Yeah, I mean, it's just kind of like, it's just sad to me that, like, everything's there that, like, some of the most beautiful shit I've ever done was an accident mm-hmm. on paper. Mm-hmm. Or that's where it at least started. And then I kept going and I kept going and I, I got to the vector. And that's how I work, you know, so... I was trained that way, and I know it's the way the, of, the, of these old masters. So I'm just trying to, you know, trying to saw bass that shit up. They used to draw this stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, it's, and that's, there's this incredible thing. I think that's you can tell when something's done by hand. You can't disguise that feel. People get really good at doing, executing electronically. Yeah, yeah. But there's, a gen, there's like an authenticity of when your hand is involved that's hard to convey yeah. in digital medium. On top of that, I just, you know, we make our little field notes. I like making lists, and it feels good. To st- it doesn't have the same feeling like touching a little check button, checklist, mm-hmm. on-off button on your phone. It's not as it's it's so uh, uh, it's like so vapory or something. Mm-hmm. It, you know, you can screw up on your phone so easily. Like when you sign something off on a list, it's dead. Yeah. Onto the next thing, and that's an old way of doing shit. But that's how I try to do it. You know, it still works for me. And of course, I'm on that phone. I'm lethal as anyone else, getting around, showing stuff, showing work, sharing stuff. But no, man, I still want us to lose that stuff, mm-hmm. you know? So I try to make, you know, shit that people remember, you know? I get, I get messed with by these guys at these promo companies because they, they want me to get the latest squeezy ball USB yeah. dongle or some shit. You know, I don't want that. I want bullshit, clammy-ass uh, coin purse. I get them for a good deal. Well, you're making posters people want to put up on their walls, too. Yeah, trying, yeah. That's the thing. I mean, you know, like the, I'm looking at the California poster. It's that you're, you're trying to bring a sense of the place and all these posters you do of the state. And, it's a, and again, it's, it's going back. Like the, when I was talking to Jim Kudal about field notes uh, a few months ago, yeah, he talked about how you, know, you made this, you know, these are being He's the made. smart side of the company. <laughs> <laughs> He's got the sense of what resonates with people. Yeah. But the field notes, like that's become a national phenomenon. And then people have tried to oh. replicate it too. Yeah. But it's that, it's even things like the fact that you try to get it manufactured in the United States. That you want to have it made sometimes here. It's yeah, sometimes it's not easy. Mm-hmm. Isn't that sad that you can't, Make something so simple mm-hmm. in a simple way for a simple price anymore. Now you got to, I mean, you're forced to go somewhere really far away and they got to put it on a boat for six more weeks and in the end it all evens out. You know, right. it's just kind of, it's kind of to me that it's like that. Now, you know, be it, I, I look at things and I love simplicity. Like I love going to a hardware store and seeing a memo book that's there, has an item number on it. Mm-hmm. Now, within this big hardware store, there's 54,000 items. One of them is the memo book, and it's, there's no reason to over-design it, under-design it. There's nothing ironic about it. It's just paper with a spiral. Like, that is beautiful to me. That's a functional item, and it's perfectly designed because it's built for that guy. So he's to jot down some notes. That's mm-hmm. the whole idea with this thing is this thing, sure, when we've sold to a bunch of hipsters and shit, fine, we'll take their money all day. But it also works for my dad. Mm-hmm. My dad's red state buddies. Mm-hmm. You know, we're weird motherfuckers, you know? So... It, it's it, we we need these things in our lives, and I you know our hope has always been 
when I showed them to Jim, was like, I just couldn't find ones that didn't have garbage all over them or yeah, bad yeah. type, bad yeah. type or something, or some ironic, you know, I don't know, bitch soap or something. You know that kind of stuff you see in those trinket shops, you know? Like, yeah. I just wanted one that was ours, yeah. and we controlled the type, and we controlled the, the design or the undesign. We controlled the little funny stuff in the back and the details that we painstakingly try to keep up. Mm-hmm. You know, there's certain things that Jim will pitch, I'll pitch, and we lose money on, but we don't care. Like, it's yeah. just like, we want to make it cool, we want to make it memorable. That feel on that paper was a little different than the last one, and... How many times can we do it? Well, it's kind of infinite. Mm-hmm. We'll figure out a way, you know. And so, you know, that sort of a process of invention or maybe even de-invention to take us back to somewhere simpler. Yeah. Like, it's just kind of scary and exhilarating to think that, like, I have people who write me and say, I am, I am writing poetry again. I'm making mm-hmm. beautiful grocery lists on your field notes. My dad has a hard time hearing. He was in Vietnam, and he uses these things to help him remember things. Mm-hmm. Like, that's just, you know, here come the waterworks. Like, we, you know... There's probably an app for it. People call us and want to make apps for field notes. Jim was talking about yeah. it. It's like, what are you talking about, man? Put your phone down a little bit less, you know, a little bit more. We play with it less, you know. It's like I use paper for that app, you know, whatever, yeah. you know. Well, it's also, I think what you're talking about is that it's almost an intimate thing because it's so small. Something yeah. that fits in your hand, something you can put in your pocket, something you can share with other people. It's not a, a phone is sort of personal and it's yeah, heavy and yeah. it's got all these parameters. Like yeah. my field notes doesn't crash. I can yeah. pull it out, open it up You'll and write see, it any time. I love when uh, everyone flips out on the plane. Mm-hmm. All right, everybody, ladies and gentlemen, I got to put your electron. What a pile of shit that is. But still, you know, I try to I, I abide by the law. But my, my laptop goes away or my doodad or my dingleberry or whatever the hell I'm playing with. That goes away. And then out come my field notes for the next 25 minutes before mm-hmm. we land. And, you know, no one can mess with you then. I got the light on, and I'm soaring with the eagle still. And it's like, you know, I, I, um, I feel very free on paper. That's, mm-hmm. how I, you know, that's how I make a logo. That's how I do whatever. And the idea that if it worked for a guy in 1940 or 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 or 90 in his, like, front pocket, we've kind of lost those options, you know? And I don't want us to. Like, you know, old timers were onto it. Granted, these were some backwoods hasty motherfuckers sometimes, but still, they were, you know, there was a certain folky, I don't know, pragmatism to that stuff. Mm-hmm. And now, and I don't ever want us to be ironic to where it's suddenly like a novelty. If it's a novelty to someone, fine, until it gets a hold of you. And yeah. that's really cool. And you use it in your life. And that's a good functional thing, I think, you know, so. Well, Aaron, thanks for talking about your, your work and your life. Thank Glenn's you. Glenn, it's been great. Can we talk about me a little bit more? Oh, absolutely. Let me have a shout-out section from mom and dad and from my pretty girl, Lee, and little Oliver and my almost brother, Jacob, almost brother-in-law, Jacob, and my little sister, Leah, and my sister, Sarah, who likes Kid Rock, and I'll never understand that, and then all my friends in town. And if I make it to October 15th, I'll be 40. I'm not promising anything. <laughs> thanks, Aaron. Projectio is the most adorable tiny thing. It's a tiny film projector and it was funded through Kickstarter, no surprise, but the the folks behind it wanted to bring this kind of neat experience, the shared experience of looking at old slides and put it into your hand. Uh, The whole thing is fascinating and I had a great talk with Ben Redford who's behind the project about the different components they put together, the purpose of it and how they combined this wonderful sense of analog technology with digital tools that let them produce this this neat little thing. Here's my talk with Ben Redford. Um, ben, this is the most adorable little thing you've made. Can you explain what this small projector does? Yeah, so uh, Projectio is a, a, a mini Instagram projector, and it came out from 
taking apart a old 35mm slide film projector and just miniaturizing the insides and working out how to get your... Your, your digital files onto onto old analog film. This is great. Are you 3D printing the, the thing? I see you have an unfolded model here. I can put up a picture of, but it looks, um, it's kind of beautiful by itself, but then you fold these pieces together? How's so, it assembled? Uh, the original prototype for Projectio was, was 3D printed, and through that we found out that actually um, one of the cheapest ways for SLS printing uh, to become sort of viable for us to, as a send-out was to make things as, as flat as possible. So what, you, what I'm holding in my hands now is... Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll put a picture up, it's okay. <laughs> a, it, it's completely fat at its, at its biggest point. It's one millimeter thick and it's got living hinges, which are 0.25 millimeters. And those, because it's SLS, they're able to bend mm-hmm. and then you can fold that up um, and it makes a little a little printer, so a little sorry, projection, a little projection a little, screen, a little theater. And the the uh, the parts on the on the projector part, the proje- projector looks more complicated. It's got different colors. Are these all three D printed too, or are you going into production? No, they they're full scale mass production now. So they're injection molded and assembled, and um, yeah, all of the the PCB is spot welded and all that kind of stuff. Do you tie? Does Instagram have an API? Do you tie into that so people? It can, does. Yeah. So we we mm-hmm. tie into that. Um, on the second to last day of our Kickstarter campaign is when um, they actually changed the terms and conditions. Uh, so <laughs> that was interesting. <laughs> um, and yeah, and then obviously with the with the Facebook buyout, there's there's increasing amounts of uh, loopholes that we're we're having to, or holes that hoops that we're having to jump through. I see. Well, you've got you've got Flickr. There's other services out there people could use too. I mean, I realize it's Instagram focused because that's where people are putting their photos, but I assume there's going to be other ways. Absolutely. You're probably planning for other ways to get people in. So we're sort of working on. Um, well, we're, we're testing demand for a, a separate image uploader at the moment, but that obviously comes with all of its caveats of different resolutions, different picture sizes, different file types, all of that kind of stuff. And so hopefully, if there's enough demand, we'll, we'll be building that in the very near future. How do you handle printing to 35 uh, millimeter film negatives? Are you working with a service bureau, or did you get your own gear to, to print that out? We actually, yeah, we've, there's, there's not many places that do it anymore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and we found a company in Albany, upstate New York, who were developing E6, but were intending to, to sort of phase it out across the next few months. And we, we managed to convince them uh, to sort of partner with us after <laughs> after many sort of well begging basically. <laughs> oh wow! So that's a big. So you got this incredible chain of things, right? You're using uh, mass production, injection molding, absolutely 3D printing for prototyping, and then also for the final version of the uh, projection screen. That's it. And old-fashioned analog film, but you're using digital, the old-style digital imaging too. That's it. 35 mil. Oh my gosh, that's yeah. hilarious. And every and every single wheel is completely unique to a user. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a very sort of complicated fulfillment process as well. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, the, it's not the simplest project. <laughs> this is like, are you based in the US or UK? London. You're based London. in London. Yeah. So this is, did you have Viewmasters when you were growing up? Was that part of your childhood? I did, yeah. I probably did the have... last, but you're just young enough. This was probably the last part of your childhood. Or yeah. last, you were probably five. And so then I, I, disappeared. I, I got a lot, I've got a lot of elder brothers. Um, mm-hmm. And so I got hand-me-downs of, of Viewmasters from, from their youth as well. Oh, that's great. Well, this is a lovely project. And I'll put up links so forth. So I was talking to Ben Redford. Of Projectio, thanks for chatting. Thank you very much. You may have heard of a camera obscura, but have you heard of a camera lucida? You'll understand after you listen to my talk with Pablo Garcia, the head of Neo Lucida, a Kickstarter-backed project that brought us a new way of copying things from life onto paper. It's another great combination of technology, manufacturing. It involves 
Chinese manufactured parts and crowdfunding and unexpected results and education. It's it's just another terrific story about when you bring a great old idea together with some new technology, what you can do. Now, here's my talk with Pablo Garcia about Neo Lucida's Camera Lucida, and you'll find out just what I'm talking about. So uh, I'm talking to Pablo Garcia, and your company is Neo Lucida? Neo, Neo Lucida, that's Neo, right. Neo Lucida, I'll say it in the right, the Italian pronunciation. Proper reflection, yeah. That's right. So um, uh, really, it's like you raised a ton of money on Kickstarter for a thing that, in its origins, must be hundreds of years old, and you're making a new version of it. Yep. Uh, we, we made a 21st century camera lucida based on early 19th century designs. So in the early 19th century, in 1807, Scottish uh, inventor William Hyde Wollaston invented this very simple device, which is a prism on an adjustable stand, which allows an artist to see both the scene in front of them and their hand at the same time. So essentially, you can trace what you see. Well, this, is a, this is a copying tool, right? This was being used right. for, for, because, I mean, of course, long before, but I mean, copying was such a fundamental part of, of yes. work, of all right. kinds of work, engraving and anything. Right. And, right? and the, one of the key aspects of this tool that he, he brought into the world allows people not only to copy images, but also draw from life as though you were copying. Because one of the difficulties in drawing from life is trying to negotiate the three-dimensional thing you're seeing with the two-dimensional page that you're drawing on. So having a device that kind of flattens the scene for you allows you to trace a flat image aided a lot of people in getting over that, that hump of trying to translate a 3D scene into a 2D page. Oh, I see. That's really interesting. Yeah. So this, is a this is a tool, originally a tool for people to do that. And now why do people want this tool in 2013? Why was this so appealing to people? Well, we were honestly very surprised by it. I mean, our goal was 500 units, oh $15,000. Yeah. Uh, it started because, um, well, I mean, the, back, the full backstory is that in 2000, 2001, David Hockney, the English artist, wrote a book called Secret Knowledge, in which he posited that old masters used drawing aids in their work. It was controversial because there was a whole debate, mostly from art historians, not so much art makers, that... That sounds like cheating. You're saying terrible, blasphemous things about our most revered his historical artists. And that became a, a, a sticking point. And flash forward, I had read the book and I purchased my first Camera Lucida because I already had interest in mechanical drawing, aided drawing and such. And I should just say, a, there, people, a lot of people know what a camera obscura is because yes. that's that pinhole. You look, you can take a scene, it's projected in a dark space, right. you could draw, trace over it. It preceded a photographic sure. film entirely. Yep. But this is, this is the Camera Lucida is... It's like a different version, but same kinds of optical concepts. Right. Uh, a camera obscura allows you to trace also. A few issues with the camera obscura. One is you need the dark room. Lighting is very, very specific. Also, the image is then projected upside down onto your page, right, if you're doing it vertically. And then when you put your hand to trace, your hand now creates a shadow of where you drew. So... If you think about it, Camera Obscura, even though it's famous and old and goes back to ancient times as a concept, a concept of the physical nature of the world, as a drawing aid, it's not very good. Uh, and so, in a kind of moment of genius, just having this prism on a stick allowed Wollaston and then artists of the early 19th century to kind of overcome a lot of those problems. This, the Camera Lucida works in all lighting. It works... Outdoors, indoors, doesn't matter. It does, your hand doesn't block the image because the image is in your eye, basically. Uh, and so it solves all those problems. Now, 
when Hockney wrote this book, I started getting invested in, in drawing with it and studying them a little bit. And then I had a conversation with my partner on the project, Golan Levin. We both were teaching at Carnegie Mellon together. And he said, oh, I just read the Hockney book. I'm fascinated by this. What do you think? And we had this conversation that led less to the drawing aid and more about Hockney's thesis in which people were able to debate it because Hockney was limited by only being able to explain this is what I see when I look at a camera Lucida, I think people used it. But oh, because yeah, there yeah. were none around, people couldn't really judge that for themselves. So, but it looks like, I mean, this is a very complicated thing you guys came up with. Wh- what's your expertise? So I'm trained as an architect, mm-hmm. um, but I've been drawing my whole life. And expertise is honestly from studying these things firsthand. So I teach art now. I used to teach architecture. But for, all, for a long time, it was always about drawing systems. And, and you know, the thing about an architect, they're drawing a lot of different ways. Design drawings are different than drawing from life. And so I've always been fascinated by ways historically that people have used drawing to communicate visual ideas. So it naturally led to these kind of mechanical systems because the more I looked into it, the more I realized historically... People have always used devices, like this idea that everyone is superhuman and just draws by eye is a total myth, and that since the beginning of, let's say, even the beginning of perspective, people were coming up with rules and systems to aid them in drawing realistically, and then tools to aid that, that process. You know, the joke about perspective is Brunelleschi, my art history professor in college, said Brunelleschi invented perspective because people didn't like his work so much, so he destroyed art for everyone else. <laughs> he invented a new technique that no one knew how to use. Right. There is some validity in it. He was right. a genius. But, but I see, I mean, this is a highly mixed, so I understand the drawing part. This is, a, I mean, looking at the pieces that you have laid out that, mm-hmm. that put together, uh, you've got rapid prototyping elements, you've got metal construction out of the flexible arm. This right. is a very complicated mechanical uh, setup you did. How did you approach the prototyping and production of this? Well, just to estimate for the Kickstarter. Even. Sure. Well, the first step, because we, we didn't have an audience that we knew of. Yeah. We were making assumptions, right? So what we did was it was all off-the-shelf parts from China, basically. So we, we hired an undergrad to aid us in the research. Basically, her job was to be up in the middle of the night to deal with the time difference and contact China to find basically the few parts we knew we needed. Yeah, yeah. Prisms, a way to hold the prism, a flexible gooseneck or some stick that holds Mm -hmm. it, and then a clamp. And uh, if you can see, actually, over there, the, the, the chrome one, that's our original prototype. So I'll, I'll put a picture up in the show notes. Sure. Yeah, I mean, you've got, there's a table I should, for listeners, there's a table set up here with a bunch of Neo Lucidas with people drawing instructions on how to use it and art it's a, uh, so people can test it out right. while they're here. So uh, the original one was really about off-the-shelf components. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, it was actually a lot easier than it would sound because we wanted to make it simple. We figured we'd assemble it by hand, like a few hundred of them ourselves, uh, you know, we'll We'll pay some students with pizza to kind of like help us assemble a bunch of them and then send them out in the world. Then open source the data so that other people can learn yeah. how to make their own. What happened was the Kickstarter launched and it resonated enough where we got 11,400 backers. We raised a lot more money than we thought. Yeah. And it changed the project for us. So mm-hmm. it became now, well, we, we partnered up with a manufacturing group, two guys that, that we met one who lives in Chicago with me, the other one who lives in China. They've made a lot of uh, stuff before. They've had a lot of Kickstarter success. Um, the name is Big Eye Design. And they were so instrumental in helping us deal with the manufacturing side because they have a person who lives in China. They've done it before. It also then allowed us to reconsider the project beyond the, the tool. So curricular pedagogical goals, like well, now we can put them in the hands of classrooms because we have enough of them. Uh, one of our goals after we fulfill the Kickstarter is sell some 
retail, but then also donate some to middle schools and high schools, especially public schools who can't afford it, and in exchange for our teachers to develop curriculum around the device. So what we'll get is kind of teacher's guides for how to use the device because there's something about a 13-year-old who wants to draw, who gives up because it's frustrating. We want to intercept that and say, what happens if they get this tool at that moment where they're maybe about to give up? In addition to the adults who said, I used to draw or I never learned to draw, now I want to draw. But that 13-year-old is someone that we're really curious about. So we have been contacted by a lot of teachers. In addition, we've been contacted by a lot of people who we wouldn't have thought of. So scientists, so scientific illustrators, medical professors, uh, National Geographic expressed interest for their archaeology training program. I mean, a very curious group that at first glance I was like, wow, I, didn't, I never thought of that. And then all of a sudden I said, wait, well, actually that makes perfect sense. They're all trying to do the same thing. There's something about drawing which allows you to see the world a certain way, analytically, precisely, that will yield a result for research for later on. And I also think this is a, it ties in beautifully with like the, uh, the Etsy movement, the maker movement. It's that yeah. there's people who, uh, I took, I have an art degree, but I don't, I can't draw very well. I can draw acceptably. I know some of the rules for perspective and so okay. forth. But this would be a tool for me if I wanted to take something, take a photograph, adapt something yep. with, you know, with rights and so forth, yep. and put it into another design. This right. gets me to that point. Right. Uh, I had actually someone right here uh, today. She came by and was asking, like, well, I'm a filmmaker, I'm a photographer, and I've wanted to do this project where I kind of draw my photographs, but I want the hand-drawn feel. And all of a sudden I was like, well, perfect, because this thing can sit in for a copy stand if you want. That allows for a lot of easy copying. So. Yeah. So now where are you in terms of, uh, so this completed in June. You knew while it was underway it was going to be huge. You could right. see the money pouring in. Where are you in terms of making this into, uh, like fulfilling the, the backers and then into a commercial thing for release? Well, we are just finishing up the design prototyping. Mm -hmm. So we, right now, as I'm recording this, there is a DHL plane with the last final prototype heading to my house in right Chicago on, right on. for approval. Some of the parts are already in production, but the final piece is basically done. Uh, production will begin, full production begins right now, and then we will deliver by the end of October to our backers. We've also made 5,000 additional ones that we are going to probably use something like Amazon Fulfillment. So when those come in after the backers have received theirs, we will announce kind of retail availability. Right. We're giving us some of our backers who, because we limited the number we were selling on Kickstarter, uh, there were a bunch of backers who did pledge a dollar, two dollars just to be in on it. Yeah. We'll give them first crack. They'll get theirs and then it'll be a full-on retail sale, something like Amazon. So if you're, if it's, you're an Amazon Prime member, you can buy it like any other product and, and uh, get the shipping. So it'll be available hopefully very beginning of December mm -hmm. uh, as a kind of full-on retail model. And if there's demand and they yeah. sell out, we now have the process under our belt so we can do a pre-order system and then every three months basically new produce new batches. So this, has this taken over your entire life? Or have you, are you, is your old life gone and replaced this? Or well, it's... you know, uh, fortunately for us, because we're both college professors, yeah. we launched the Kickstarter in May. It ended in June. So having the summer free awesome. helped a lot. Now yeah. that the class has begun again, it's a little tricky. But uh, no, it's not. It's, it's taken over in a way that has been very fulfilling mm -hmm. because, you know, we're not, we're not trying to create a startup. We're not trying to make a lot of money. And that would take, like, marketing and being really aggressive with getting your product out in the world. As a result, we've been spending more of our time designing a, a beautiful thing, making it accessible to users, and then building this community 
makers, users, and then also the kind of educational component, which we equate to a MOOC. I mean, it's kind of this massive 11,000 backers plus all these thousands more who've asked for one. You know, they're going to be part of this educational moment where we're sending out historical data, uh, lessons, and and slideshows and videos about where this stuff came from. And then on the website becomes a massive open source document for this, plus hopefully bridging to other conversations about art and technology, optical tools, the history of drawing, the history of art. Um, So it's taken over, but in a way that I always hoped it would take over, meaning like I love this topic. I love the device. I love the history. And it allows me to continue doing that. And as a college professor, it fits nicely with my class work and oh that's great so, so this fits uh, in beautifully with your right exactly yeah you're gonna, so, to, you're gonna build curricula around or you're gonna teach this technique right. and for, for years i would bring in my yeah. a couple of my vintage ones so students could actually see it and try mm-hmm. it uh you know build a camera obscure in a classroom yeah, that kind of yeah. stuff right but now yeah there's a chance that because of our price point always aimed at the broke art student you know 45 dollars is something that a student can buy keep in their bag for years um also being able to buy them in bulk if you're a college and you want to buy them for your foundation class or for drawing classes so we are keeping tabs on a bunch of different groups of people who are who are interested in using it for their teaching methods whether it's high school middle school college art college science or even beyond we're going to keep tabs on them and kind of bring them into the fold so that we have a database for other scientists and artists to use it so Fantastic. Well, thank you for talking to me about uh, Neil Lucida. I've been talking to Pablo, uh, Pablo Garcia about Neil Lucida. That sounds good together, too. Oh, thank you. The name <laughs> thanks for chatting. Thank you very much. For, thanks so much for your time. Well, thanks for listening to my roundup of interviews from the market part of XOXO. These folks are, represent just a small percentage of the people attending and speaking and participating at this event. It's hard to not feel that this is a movement when I saw a tiny percentage of everything that's going on represented in a few days in Portland between all the attendees, speakers, and people showing off their work. It's not that the entire economy's changed. I've never tried to maintain that. But we're seeing an effect as things get bigger and bigger. Kickstarter has now dispersed about $660 million across its lifetime. It's not getting smaller. Etsy keeps growing. New sites are popping up all the time that help bring audiences and creators together for the benefit of both. Uh, I hope you'll take that to heart as we go forward in the coming weeks and months. And I talk to more people about what makes us all tick and how you can get involved in changing your own life to make it closer to how you want to live, what you want to create, what you want to do. Before I sign off, I'd like to thank everyone who came to the live event in Portland before XOXO at the Ford Food and Drink. It was a lot of fun to get everyone together. We had music, comedy, interviews, and more. We'll try to do this again. It's just great meeting people in person, having the energy of a live audience, and having the place to talk about things. It was also great to meet everyone who came up to me at XOXO and told me that they listened to the show. I'm eager for feedback. I'd love to know if there's other people you'd like to hear from who you're not hearing from on the show and any suggestions you have. You can find us, as always, at newdisrupt.org. Stay in touch. I'd love to hear from you. We'll be back next week with another interview. The New Disruptors has a new home. Find us at newdisrupt.org. You can find our new podcast feed, leave comments on individual podcasts, or send feedback. We release a new episode every Thursday. Would you like to sponsor this show? We'd be glad to have you. Visit podlexing.com, P-O-D-L-E-X-I-N-G.com for more details. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com, and our audio engineer is Michael Warner. Our podcast audio is hosted by SoundCloud. 
We are a production of The Magazine, an electronic periodical for curious people with a technical bent. Find out more and read free articles at the-magazine.org. This podcast is licensed under the Creative Commons by NCND 3.0 license. Feel free to distribute it intact and with attribution to us by linking back to our site. We only ask you don't offer it for sale. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time. Thanks for listening.